As you take your seats, I invite you to turn in God's, uh, your copies of God's holy and inspired word to the Gospel of Matthew. The Gospel of Matthew, as I mentioned last week, we are going, we are beginning, uh, we technically began it last week, but we are uh, beginning a new sermon series on the Sermon on the Mount. Just to give you a, a little idea of where we will be going with this sermon series, I have titled the series, Sermon on the Mount, Forming the Moral Imagination and Practices of Christian Flourishing. Forming the Moral Imagination and Practices of Christian Flourishing. Now, as we get started this morning... We have to begin with where Scripture itself begins in the description, not merely of what Jesus preaches, but the setting of the preacher himself. And so this morning we look at a prophet who is greater than Moses. I'm going to read this morning from Matthew chapter 4, beginning in verse 12, uh, into the beginning of chapter 5. Now, when he heard that John, when Jesus heard that John uh, the Baptist had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee, and leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled: the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light, and those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him, and going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother, in the boat with Zebedee their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and brought him, uh, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth, and he taught them. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would give us ears to hear this morning, and that you would especially give us eyes to see who this Jesus is that is going to be speaking and challenging, instructing a people who were called by his name, to be formed in his image, 
as those who are participants in his life. So indeed, help us to hear, help us to see, and help us to value and do what is here. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. As I mentioned last week, this is the 50th anniversary of the PCA. Our denomination, having been formed back in 1973, was formed for the purpose of being faithful to the Scriptures, true to the Reformed faith, and obedient to the Great Commission. And as it is the 50th anniversary, is a natural place for us to take a step back and evaluate. Is this who we are? Have we matured in this original vision that was cast from the beginning? Or are there places that we need to, to find correction? Are there places that we need to go further and deeper and broader? How are we doing with regards to this overall purpose set from the very beginning of who the PCA is supposed to be? This is also the 20th anniversary of Grace Covenant Church. In just a few weeks, it will be 20 years that this church has been in existence as one of the, indi- one of the individual congregations of the PCA. And the purpose for any congregation, as we saw last week from Matthew 28, is to make kingdom disciples. And so it is a very natural opportunity in the life of this body not only for us to reflect upon what God has been doing in and through the PCA, but what God is doing in and through us as Grace Covenant Church. Are we a church whose purpose is making kingdom disciples? What we don't want to do as a church is either intentionally or unintentionally replace the call to mission with a preoccupation with creating a comfortable place where our preferences are upheld. What we don't want to do is to replace the call to mission with a preoccupation with maintenance. Are we going to be on mission, transporting the gospel both here and abroad, or are we going to become like the the U.S. uh, or like the S.S. United States? Are we going to become a tourist attraction that is stuck in port that has carried that has catered to our luxury and preferences? That is the way for Grace Covenant Church to become the S.S. United States. That is the way for us to become a relic of the past tied to a dock serving the interests of tourists rather than engaged in mission. As we asked last week, are we going to be a luxury liner or a troop carrier? We have received this most amazing privilege of being commissioned by the Lord of the universe who has all authority and power to participate in his eternal purposes. And the very final instructions of Jesus to his church that we looked at last week must constantly remain the first priority of Grace Covenant Church. Grace Covenant Church strives to embrace, embody, and extend our triune God's truth, goodness, and beauty through the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
whether we are doing it here, whether you are doing it in your, in your vocation, whether you do it in your family, with your children, whether you do it with your neighbor, your coworker, your schoolmate, your teammate, whomever it may be. We are called to a lifestyle of making disciples. And so the claim of Jesus upon which our mission stands is his ultimate authority, his jurisdiction for the freedom of action for him to do anything and everything that he wants to do in order to accomplish what he wants to accomplish. There is nothing missing for us. There is nothing lacking for us. It is for us to connect ourselves to the claim of the authority of Jesus Christ in order to serve this commission of making Jesus Christ's throughout the world. We are making disciples, which means that we are bearing witness to Christ, calling sinners out of darkness into the light, and then participating in Jesus by word and spirit, conforming these new little Christs into more and more mature Christs until the eternal realities of the new heavens and the new earth come. And where you and I will shine and reflect the fullness of God's glory back to Him as those not only saved by grace, but those who are made righteous body and soul. That's what we have the privilege of being about in what is to be shaping every single thing that we do, say, desire, and pursue. As I taught the kids this morning, our chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. The confidence that we have is that Jesus has told us He is with us and that he will never forsake us. Ultimately, what we are doing as God's people here, as, as we are bearing witness to him and calling sinners out of darkness and into light, placing the, the covenantal uh, sign and seal of Christ upon those who receive uh, who receive him by faith and who are part of the church. And as, as we do that, we are to teach, we are to train. We are not to titillate the intellect. We are to teach and we are to train. We are to mold the followers of Jesus Christ to become more like Christ in their character, in the depths of their hearts and souls in the practices in which they give themselves within this life. We are to be with Christ. We are to learn from Christ. We are to become like Christ. We are to participate with Christ in order to help reproduce Christ in others. This is what we are about. And so Jesus tells us that one of the key elements here is training these converts to guard and to keep everything that Jesus has taught. And so we come to the, 
the Sermon on the Mount in order to have a time of reflection very specifically on what Jesus has taught. But here's the problem. If you and I were honest, what we would say this morning is we don't really like or appreciate all that Jesus has taught. If you're like me, and you are, you pick and choose the parts of Jesus' teaching that you value. You pick and choose and, and you arrange in, in, in a structure those that are higher in priority to you to, and, those who, and those things that are lesser priority to you. Right? Learn the truth. Oh, that's really high up here. Right? Turn the other cheek. Mm, we'll put that one a little lower. Right? Worship God. Oh, it's up here. Give your cloak to anyone who asks, regardless of if they are doing it to take advantage of you or not. No caveat there. Right? Reflect God's love and loving others. Yeah. Love your enemies. Mm, no. Right? But, but here's the thing. What you and I do is we don't just come right out and do that within our hearts. We don't just come right out and say, all right, what's my list of priorities? Where, you know, in terms of this section of the Sermon on the Mount, where does this fit on my priority list? You know, and, and, and so you know, to what degree am I going to, to listen and attempt? Right? We don't do that consciously. What, what instead, what, what, what we tend to do is we try to find creative ways for the plain teaching of Jesus to not be as plain as it is. It's really interesting. An observation by a Jewish rabbi as he was asked about, well, what do you think about Jesus? What do you think about the teachings of this rabbi? One of the things, he had, one of the things that he says is, it's interesting to me that the history of the Christian church is a history of churches finding ways for Jesus' teachings not to mean what they say. <laughs> I'm right there with you. This is part of the struggle. John Stott has said the Sermon on the Mount is one of the most, if not the most, well-known sets of teachings of Jesus Christ in the church and out of the church. It is one of the most popular, well-known. You can go around the world and, and hear people referencing it. And yet... It seems to be the one, one of the most difficult to understand and one of the sets of instructions that is least obeyed. That's where you, you and I are. And the issues are about valuing the teachings of Christ. And so this morning, just to give a very quick snippet, before we jump into the teachings of Jesus, it is really vital, I think, in order to help, uh, help encourage us 
not to do what we so easily, typically, naturally do. By having once again the 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 mag the mag uh, for, I was about to say a word but I don't know how to say it. the the just absolute amazing the grandness the greatness of what is being described here as Jesus teaches his disciples you have heard it said but I say. What is interesting here as we as we get to the, the end of chapter 4, the beginning of chapter 5, as we get into these teachings of Jesus, if we had spent time in the early chapters of Matthew, one of the things that we would have seen is that from the very beginning, Matthew is not only setting up Jesus as the long-awaited king and the, the fulfillment of the royal promise as we focused on, as we looked at Ruth during Advent and how that, 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 that expectation, that need of a king was fulfilled uh, in the coming of Jesus Christ, but he has also been, been reflecting upon the Jewish wisdom tradition of the Torah and the Hebrew Scriptures to present that there is also the long-awaited prophet that is better than Moses, that he has also arrived. The events of, of, of these early chapters with regards to the early life of Jesus Christ and the life of Moses are very purposely being described in the same way. There are dreams that are connected with both of their births. There is the slaughter of children from which they are both supernaturally spared. There is flight from the land only to return at God's direction. There is temptation in the wilderness. There is 40 days and nights of fasting on a mountain of revelation. There is passing through the Jordan River. And there is this service of being the mediator of God's covenantal revelation to his treasured possession. As Jesus is described in these early chapters, and now we see him performing miracles, ascending the mountain, and speaking on behalf of God, the, the very setting of the teaching itself is calling us back. It's calling us back to the, mount, the mountain of revelation that we read about earlier in the service, Mount Sinai. There are lots of mountains that, that play a role, but in the Old Testament, Mount Sinai is one of the chief mountains where God, who has redeemed his people from bondage and slavery in Egypt, brings them to the mountain. And as he descends on the mountain and reveals his glory on the mountain, he speaks to his people on the mountain and his people shake and they quake and they are afraid. And yet what God is revealing to his covenant people there is what they need to know about who God is, what God has done, the privilege of being his people, and what it looks like to live as the redeemed, treasured possession of the eternal God. 
And what he reveals to them then in the Torah, as what he reveals in the law, is nothing less than God revealing himself. Here's who I am. I am the most infinite, glorious, beautiful, so have no other gods before me. And every bit of the law and instruction is coming forth. It is, it is, it is framed in such a way as it is like, as God, like God saying, do you want to know who I am? I am holy and righteous and loving and glorious, and I judge sin, but I also provide grace. And he just unfolds and unfolds and unfolds and unfolds, and he's revealing himself. That's what the law is. God's self-revelation. The law also, however, is revealing to you and to me what will God's people look like when they enter finally and completely and fully into the new heavens and the new earth? What are we going to look like? We are going to be perfectly devoted to God. We will have no other gods before him. And guess what? This past week, what you and I have been, we have been a mixture. We have had God as, as our treasured, uh, uh, that, that treasure that we adore and that, that we strive to get to know and to worship and to serve. And yet, you and I have also set up other things as also being very important and have lived for them as well. And this is our existence as God's people. We are going to be a mixture of these different devotions. But beloved, ultimately where God is taking us through his efforts of sanctification in us, is that he is going to purify us to the point that in the new heavens and the new earth, you and I will never struggle with divided hearts again. And so the Torah is an expression of who God is in himself. It's also an expression of who you and I will be in the new heavens and the new earth. But it's also a description of one other thing. It is a description of the, of the Messiah who will come. When we have here these opening chapters and this introduction of the Sermon on the Mount, what we have in Jesus Christ is the long-awaited fulfillment of God's promises, but also he is the long-awaited embodiment of God's where Moses serves as a mouthpiece through whom God speaks the law to God's people. Jesus is the law. Do you want to know the righteousness of the law? Jesus says, look at me, because in me the law has come, because I am the complete imprint of God in flesh. And the words that were revealed from God through Moses to the people, that the people said, everything that you have said, we will do, <laughs> which they didn't, right? That's the whole reason for the rest of the Old Testament. Well, did they live up to the promise? No. But did God live up to his? Absolutely. And now the, the words that Moses uh, gave the people that they said that they would do, the word himself has now come in flesh. And the righteous keeping of God's law 
is now in front of them for them to see and to touch and to handle and to listen to. And what Jesus now does in the Sermon on the Mount is he says, if you're going to follow me, then here is what your life is to look like because this is my life. The Sermon on the Mount is being preached by the Word made flesh as he is the fulfillment not only of the promises, but as he is the fulfillment of the speaking God who comes in flesh to continue to speak. And he says, everything that I'm about to share with you, as challenging as it's going to be, what I'm sharing with you is who I am and who I am going to make you to become. And so listen to me. Why did God reveal himself to his people at Mount Sinai? Was it because he wanted them to suffer and struggle and be scared and to live you know, under this, this weight of, of you know, trying to please him through their works? Or was he revealing to them, here is how you live with me so that I am a blessing to you and not a curse? We don't tend to use this language in reformed circles because we rightly want to, to protect against you know, um, aberrant teaching and false notions of the gospel, especially like the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. But the bottom line is God has revealed himself to his people in order that we may flourish with him. That's his purpose for us is to know Him, to be known by Him, to become like Him, so that we enjoy His blessings. If you're going to believe God, you have to believe, the writer of Hebrews says, that not only does God exist, but He rewards those who seek Him. As we talked about in Sunday school this morning with the kids, and from Psalm 16, at God's right hand is, is eternal joy. At God's right hand are pleasures forevermore. God, is, God who is the one who is of infinite, eternal worth and value has made us and redeemed us to share His eternal, infinite worth and value with us. And as we receive His words, and as we take a chance on them, as we exercise faith and trust Him and live according to what He says, especially when it makes no logical sense to do so. What He says is this is the means by which you flourish with Me. The problem for us is that our moral imaginations are tied to things other than God's word. Our values and our ethics get shaped by earthly things, earthly concerns, earthly wants, earthly ideas, earthly philosophies, to which Paul tells us, 
Don't allow yourself to be captured by these things. They have the appearance of wisdom, the appearance of godliness, but they're empty. What Jesus is, is the one who has come from heaven to reveal the heavenly wisdom by which a heavenly people might flourish as that heavenly people, even as we wait for the fullness of the heavenlies to become revealed. And if you and I want to be successful in making kingdom disciples, it will come through our own treasuring, seeing, and saving, savoring the heavenly realities so that you and I become the bouquet of those heavenly realities within the relationships that we have in this world. Do you want to be a, a part of God's mission of calling sinners out of darkness and helping them to grow and mature into little Christ's? Well, then come to them in the bouquet of the heavenly places. But that is going to require for you and me to let go of earthly values. It's going to require us to let go of the things that so often, without us even realizing it, give us comfort, things that give us hope, things that, that reinforce our preferences, which only leads to us becoming, once again, the SS United States, a luxury liner instead of a troop carrier. And so, beloved, as we will be spending time this year reflecting upon this teaching of Jesus Christ, make no mistake, the teacher himself is God. The teacher himself is the embodiment of his teaching. The teacher himself has come from the heavenly places and the wisdom he shares is heavenly wisdom in order to help a heavenly colony who still live on earth to, to live and to grow and to flourish in the heavenly realities that you and I, as Paul says in Ephesians 1, through our union with Christ have already received every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Do you want to know how to live as a heavenly being, part of the heavenly people, in order to be used to reveal the Christ of heaven? Then you're going to have to let go of your preferences, and you're going to have to let go of your anxieties, and you're going to have to actually entrust yourselves to the difficult, challenging, teaching of Jesus, whose purpose is to reshape your moral imagination so that you might be formed more and more after the values and practices that lead to the enjoyment of Christian flourishing. This is what it means to be a kingdom disciple, and this is the means by which you and I will participate in making kingdom disciples. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, fill us with your truth and help us to entrust ourselves to it. And Lord, start with me. I get so frustrated at times, Lord, with not the obvious ways that I, that I choose finite realities over the infinite. 
but in how many different ways it is happening that I'm not even aware of. How easy and how comfortable it is to, to, pursue, to, to pursue personal peace and affluence, as Schaefer taught. And so, Lord, help us as we want to grow and mature as followers of Jesus Christ to listen to his encouragement to take up our cross as we follow him. Lord, instruct us from the Sermon on the Mount specific ways that cross-bearing looks like. And Lord, help us to entrust ourselves to it and help us to taste of the blessings that are to be found in living with you, devoted to you, entrusting ourselves to you as you indeed are with us through Jesus Christ, who has promised never to leave us nor forsake us. Father, help us taste of what we have received by faith in Christ. Help us to taste of it on a daily basis that we may treasure you above all else, live for your glory, and enjoy you forever. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.